I want you to, for a moment with me, imagine a man who had tried it all and had it all. I'm talking about possessions, uh, pleasures, power, prestige, prosperity. I mean, this man was worth billions and billions of dollars in today's economy. But this is how it left him. Miserable, empty, unfulfilled, unsatisfied. Because you see, without God, life is just plain empty. It really is. And I'm not talking about some recent rock star. I'm not talking about a professional athlete right now. I'm not talking about a CEO of some big company. I'm actually talking about Solomon, the king of Israel. And we read his story in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is like an exciting day for our church as we start our next book of the Bible study. If you're new uh, to our church or just started coming, this is predominantly the way we study the Bible. Is God leads us to a book of the Bible. We start in chapter 1 verse 1 and we work our way all the way through. That puts the emphasis not on my words but on God's word. We want God's word to do the talking, not anybody else. Amen? And so we're excited today as we start this next book of our Bible. I hope you guys are excited about Ecclesiastes. A few of you are. Great. All right. That's good. If not, I hope after the introduction today, you'll be more excited about it. Go ahead now. Take out your Bibles. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Got to get used to that because that's where we're going to be for the next couple of months. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided this morning, you can find it on page 270. If you're not using one of those Bibles, you just go about to the middle of your Bible. It's the clean pages that are all stuck together. You probably haven't spent a lot of time here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter chapter 1, uh, verse 1. And let's read just the first three verses as we're going to look at the introduction today of this exciting new book. We've called this Ecclesiastes Answering Life's Difficult Questions is this series title. Ecclesiastes 1, 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? That's his opening statements here. Uh, some of you have heard me say this before. Pe people say that experience is the best teacher. How many of you guys have heard that before? Maybe you've used it. Experience is the best teacher. Next time somebody says that, say no. That's not a good statement. Experience is not the best teacher. The experience of someone else is the best teacher. Amen? So we don't make the same mistakes. And that's exactly the opportunity we have as we study the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to learn from the mistakes and the bad experiences of uh, King Solomon. And so we don't make the same mistakes. He's trying to prevent us and that's what this book is really all about. Learn from his experiences. In this book, he's going to answer a lot of life's basic questions that maybe you've asked before. People have asked um, questions like, how can I be happy? I mean, we all want to be happy. Solomon looks for happiness. How can I be happy? Um, why isn't life fair? You ever ask that question? Raise your hand. Yes. Why is life unfair? He asked that question. What happens when I die? I mean, is this all there is? Is there life after death? How much money is enough? That's a hard one to answer. How much wisdom or education enough? Why is work so hard? Or why do I work so hard? Um, how do I face the future with some hope and look forward to something, you know, more than beyond what is right now? And then the ultimate question, if you wrapped all his questions into one, it's this question. And it's the question that people have been asking since the beginning of time. What is the meaning of life? Is there any point? Is there any purpose to life? Now Solomon's conclusion is this. From a purely human point of view, if you take God out of the picture, life is very empty and pointless. 
And if you take God out of your life and out of trying to find the meaning of life, it'll lead to a very pessimistic view of life and you can become very cynical. And that happened to Solomon for a period of time. There's a Jewish writer, Shalom Alechem. He once described life as this. And this description is painful. A blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. Yeah. You can almost feel that description that he came up with life. Here's a more modern uh, day description by a man you probably heard of, George Clooney. He said this about life recently. George Clooney said, I don't believe in happy endings, but I do believe in happy travels because ultimately you die at a very young age or you live long enough to watch your friends die. He said, it's a mean thing, this thing called life. And that is so true. Life without God is pretty bleak. If we, you would agree, say yes. I mean, without God, if you take him out of the equation, it's pretty meaningless. It's pretty bleak. It's pretty difficult. Well, here's the great news. You know, you say, man, this doesn't sound like a real exciting book to study, you know, if that's what we're going to learn. But here's the good news. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.10? I have come that they may have life. But he didn't, he didn't stop there, did he? He said, and to have it more, say it, abundantly. You see, when Jesus Christ is a part of your life, when God is a part of your life, it changes everything. If you agree, say yes changes everything. And Solomon is on a quest in this book to try to find meaning in life, but he's trying to find it apart from God. And he ends up empty. You see, but what he's going to teach us is life is not in vain if it's lived according to the will of God. And that's what Solomon's going to teach us in this often neglected and often misunderstood book of the Bible. You see, we got to make sure we don't take the book of Ecclesiastes out of context. And this, this book of Ecclesiastes almost needs to come with a warning label. Uh, it's, it needs a warning label because many people misunderstand the book of Ecclesiastes. They misunderstand what Solomon is saying because they take it out of context and they miss the context. So before we get any further in this study of the book of Ecclesiastes, we have to understand the context of the perception and where Solomon is coming from when he writes this book. You see, atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and even some cults love to take the book of Ecclesiastes out of context to make it try to say something that God is not trying to say. Um, the atheists try to use verses in this book to say there's no life after death. The hedonists, the Epicureans, those that have the idea, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die, they love to pull verses out of the book of Ecclesiastes to try to prove that, you know, you might as well enjoy it now because there's nothing after this. Some of the cultists have gone in here and taken verses out of context of the book of Ecclesiastes and tried to teach things like soul sleep. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But it's basically the idea that when we die, our soul just goes to sleep and that's sort of the end and our body's in the ground and there's no consciousness and there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no afterlife. And so you have to be very careful with the book of Ecclesiastes not to take it out of its context and why Solomon wrote it. He's writing to tell us how not to think. But he's telling us through the way that he once thought which was wrong. Now Solomon is simply describing here his view of life and death what he calls under the sun. And we'll, we'll explain that in just a moment. And basically he's saying apart from God and his divine revelation to us there's really no point to life and it's, and it's meaningless. As I was studying and getting ready for this last few weeks, I started reading some commentaries and different things as I was studying, and I found several different Bible scholars that said something that really kind of made me nervous at first, and I thought, man, should we study this book? And, and it kind of caught me off 
regard because we are a church here at the Orchard and I'm a pastor and are all of our pastors that believe that we have the perfect Word of God right here. We believe in the inerrant, inspired, infallible, perfect Word of God. We believe that it doesn't just contain truth, it is truth and that we could trust it cover to cover. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. And so what I'm about to say is going to sound a little strange Unless you understand the context. So hear what I'm about to say. Because a lot of Bible scholars will tell you that if you want to find errors in the Bible, you need not look any further than the book of Ecclesiastes because it's full of error. You say, whoa, the Bible's got errors? Yeah, it's the errors of man's thinking. It's the error of Solomon trying to figure out life apart from God. And so that's where if you go in and take it out of context, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Understand this, inspiration of scripture, when we say the Bible is inspired, and I absolutely believe every bit of it is inspired, from Genesis to Revelation, every bit of it. We stand on that truth, and that we can trust it. But inspiration doesn't, it doesn't guarantee that everything is necessarily true, it guarantees that everything is accurate. I'll let you think about that for a second. Because there's a lot of things in the Bible that are accurate, but they're not true. Let me give you, a, 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 for instance, um, we know that the Bible records the words of Lucifer and the words of Satan. And the Bible tells us that he is a liar and the father of lies, right? And there's many times in the Bible that he is speaking. Now what he is saying and what we have recorded is accurate, but most of the time when he opens his mouth, what he is saying, it's accurate, but it's not true. It's a lie. All you got to do is go back to the garden with Adam and Eve. You know, God put them in the garden and said, you know, you can have everything here but one tree. I mean, they had two verses in their Bible. One don't and one do. He said, you know, be fruitful and multiply. That's what I want you to do. And don't jack with that tree. That was their don't. I mean, and they messed it up. Only two verses and they, and they messed it up. And, you know, when Eve was looking at that tree and she saw that it was good for food. And remember, God said, if you eat it, the day you eat of it, what will happen to you? You will You'll die. But Satan came along and he said, oh, that's not true. You will not die when you eat of it. Now, was that accurate that he said that? Yes. Was it true? No, it wasn't true. He was lying. And so the Bible, when, it, when it's God's word and God is speaking, and many times God is speaking through people in the Bible, we can bank on it. It's true. But there's many times that God allows man's ideas and man's thoughts to be recorded in the word of God. And they are accurately recorded, but they are not sometimes true. They're an error in their thinking. So man's ways and man's ideas can be an error, but God's word is never an error. It is truth. It is accurate. I hope I didn't confuse you. Did, did, did you guys understand that? Say yes. If you didn't, come talk to me afterward. Because what people try to do is they come in here and say, oh, God said this, God said this. It's like, no, Solomon said that. But it's the word of God. God allowed Solomon to show his stupidity is really what happened. As God often does in the Bible. And this is why atheists and agnostics go in and they try to take these scriptures out of context and say, yo, God said this. No, Solomon said it in the error of his ways. And there are errors in his thinking which will get straightened out by the end of the book. I mean, you can make the Bible say anything you want to make it say if you take it out of context. You know that. Yeah, you hear, hear about the guy one time, he was like trying to figure out God's will for his life. And he did something that was really kind of silly. He closed up his Bible and he said, okay, I, I got a decision to make. And so God, I'm going to open up your word and I'm just going to put my finger on a verse. And whatever it says, that's what I'm going to do. And so he, he opened up his Bible, he's put his finger down and it says, Judas went out and he hung himself. And he thought, man, that didn't work out so well. So he closed his Bible again and he just opened it up randomly, put his finger down. He said, okay, whatever this next one says, that's what I'm going to do. It said, whatever you do, go and do quickly. You got to be careful with this book if you take it out of 
context. I've taught you guys this before. If you're new to our church, you'll get this because most of our church will be able to say this with me. Here are the three most important rules to Bible study. And you must understand these. Anytime we study the book of the Bible or you individually study the book of the Bible, you've got to get these three rules of Bible study. You're going to want to write these down. You ready? Here's the three most important rules of Bible study. The first one is, say it church, context. The second one is, and the third one is, Context. What's the most important rule of Bible study? Context. And so this is a book that, that Solomon is giving his ideas and his thoughts and his search for meaning and life apart from God. God, through his inspiration, allows it to be written down. But we must take it in its context. Because the Bible has errors when it comes to man's thinking, but never when it comes to what God has said. In order to get a grasp of this book, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the, the author of this book, the aim, the purpose of this book, and we're going to look at the application of this book. How is it going to be applicable for us today? We're just going to try to get our, our arms around this book and kind of get a roadmap as we do the introduction today and we answer the question, is life really worth living? Alright, let's go ahead and pray and we'll dive into this this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is inspired that it is accurate, that we can count on it, and that you have even allowed some men like Solomon to write down their thoughts and words to show the error of their ways so that you can point us in the right path, in the right way. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn from the mistakes and this, the bad example of Solomon so that we would not make the same mistake that he did, looking for meaning in life apart from you, which we will not find. We'll find it empty. And we pray that we'd apply this to our lives and it would make a difference. I thank you for those in the first service that left and said, wow, that gave me a whole new perspective on life. I pray that we'd do the same thing for those in this service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let's jump in this morning as we kind of get a handle uh, on this book of Ecclesiastes. First let me give you the author of this book. Well if you're looking for the name of the author in this book, let me save you some time. It's not in here. You're not going to find the specific name, but there's a description of the author. And if we just pay a little bit of attention to the word of God, it's easy to figure out who wrote this book. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So whoever wrote this was the son of David, king David. They were the king in Jerusalem. As you go through this book, you'll find out they had great wisdom and they had great wealth. Who is that when you know your Bible? It's Solomon. King Solomon, we believe, is very clearly, through the description, the writer of this book. He's a man of great wealth. He's a man of great wisdom. Um, Ecclesiastes is an autobiography. Solomon was the ideal person to write this book because he, he possessed the opportunities to carry out the experiments required to investigate the meaning of life. You see, it'd be one thing if I came up here and I said to you guys, Listen guys, I've had everything, I've tried everything in life, and nothing will fulfill you other than God. You'd be like, yeah right. You know, we've seen your house, we've seen your card, you haven't had everything and tried everything. But see, this is coming from a man, the king in Israel, who really had seen it all, done it all. I mean, there was nothing that if he wanted, he couldn't have. Let me show you this in chapter 2, verse 10, right here in Ecclesiastes. Read this with me. Solomon said this. This is his testimony. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. 
I mean, can you imagine being that wealthy? That if you saw something you wanted, you could have it. There wasn't anything that the money could buy that you couldn't buy. There wasn't any person or a relationship you couldn't have. I mean, this guy said, I didn't keep anything from my eyes. And this was all part of his quest to try to find some kind of satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning to life. So he was perfectly qualified to do this experiment. Not many people have been able to do this. But he's qualified to. Now, one question we want to answer this morning. So some of you know this, some of you don't. I want to get everybody kind of on the same page. Where did Solomon get his great wisdom and wealth from? I mean, did he inherit this? I mean, where did he get it? I want you to hold your place in Ecclesiastes and turn to the book of 1 Kings with me. Hold your place in Ecclesiastes. Turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. 1 Kings 3, 5. It's on page 140 if you're using one of the Bibles provided. And we find out that something incredible happened one night in Solomon's life. I mean, I cannot imagine if this would happen to me. If this would happen to you, it would be an incredible thing. Now watch what happens. God comes to Solomon and he says this in verse 5 of chapter 3 of 1 Kings. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Would that be sweet or what, y'all? How many of y'all like that to happen this week? He can say, yeah. I mean, God shows up to you and says, okay, whatever you want. Just ask, it's yours. That would be pretty amazing. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. God came and said, whatever you want, Solomon, ask, and I'm going to give it to you. I mean, it kind of reminds me of those, those jokes. There's, there's all kinds of these jokes going around about genies in a bottle. You know, a genie pops out and gives you three wishes. You guys have heard those jokes, right? Well, if you haven't, let me tell you one. There was these three guys, these three friends. They were real good buddies, and they were going on this fishing trip to Alaska, and so they charted this little plane. And so they were going to Alaska, and they got caught in a storm. They went down, and then they stranded on a desert, desert island, a deserted island. Nobody else is there. And they're there for quite a while, several months. They don't know how they're going to get off this island. Finally, one day, a genie bottle comes washing up on the shore. And they're like, oh, it's a genie bottle. You know what to do? Rub the genie bottle. A genie will come out and give us wishes. And so they rub the bottle, and the genie pops out, boom. And the genie says, I'm the genie, and... Uh, thanks for letting me out of the bottle and, and I'm going to give each of you one wish. Anything you want. And the guys are like, yes! And so this one guy goes, oh, I want to go first. And he said, well, I'm from California and I miss my family and I miss the beach and walking on the beach. I love hanging out on the beach with my family and doing a picnic and I just wish I was back in California with my family having a picnic on the beach. Poof! He's back on the beach in California with his family. The second guy goes, oh, my turn, my turn. He said, oh, I miss my family so bad, and I'm from Colorado. And I, I, we, we live up in the mountains. We have a cabin in the mountains. It's beautiful. And we love to sit around the fireplace with a, our family and drink hot chocolate. And snow's coming down outside. And oh, I'd so love to be back there. Poof, he's back there. Third guy goes, oh, it's my turn. He looks around and goes, man, I really miss my friends. I wish they were back here with me. <laughs> That's really bad, I know. So if you get that chance, don't do that. But God is going to grant Solomon his wish. Anything he wants. Now of all the things you could ask for, what would you ask for? Well, look what Solomon asked for. And look how God answered. Verse 6, And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David my father because he walked before you in truth. In righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him. And you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And that was Solomon getting ready to be king. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. He's like, man, I've got to sit on the throne. I've got to rule all these people in Israel. And I, I don't know how to do it. I've never done that before. I've never been a king. And so he's like, man, that's a big task. Verse 8, and your servant... 
is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So basically, you know what Solomon asked for? Wisdom. He asked to be a wise king, to make wise decisions, and to lead the people in the right way. And look what God did, verse 10. The speech pleased the Lord. His request pleased the Lord. That Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding and discern justice, wisdom. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you nor shall any like you arise after you. So he asks for wisdom and God gives him this incredible wisdom. But because he wasn't selfish in his requests, God gives him a little bonus. And it's quite the bonus. Look at the next verse. He says in verse 13, And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. I mean, he hit the jackpot, didn't he? Solomon got it all. So he's the perfect person to write this book, going for the quest of the meaning of life. Now Solomon, in his great wisdom, also wrote the book of Proverbs. We studied last summer. And he also wrote the book of... Song of Solomon. But there's a major difference in when he wrote those two books and when he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes. Most believe that he wrote Song of Solomon and Proverbs when he was very young. And he was a young king and he was following God. He was trusting God and he was being faithful to God. And he was being blessed by God. But then there was a time that Solomon turned away from God. And he turned toward the riches, and he turned toward the people, and he turned toward the world instead of the God that had blessed him so much. Some of you know the story, and let me just give you the background, where things really began to go wrong. Solomon decided that he didn't just want one wife, he wanted many wives, and he wanted wives of all the different nations. It was kind of a political move to try to get to be allies with the other nations and everyone around. So the Bible tells us he had 700 wives. I mean, this is the wisest man to ever live and he had 700 wives now that's not so bad but he had 700 mother-in-laws I mean you know you got to take that into context but here was the real problem those 700 wives were from all the other false nations that worship false gods and they Bible says they turned Solomon's heart away from his God that had blessed him with all his wisdom and wealth and he turned to false gods and he stopped wa walking with God. And he stopped being blessed by God. And that is when, at the end of that, was toward the end of his life, probably around 945 B.C., if you're into history and dates, that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes after he had kind of left God behind on a quest on his own, apart from God, to try to find the meaning of life. Now, there's no record for sure that Solomon fully repented of all of his sins, but Ecclesiastes, toward the end, suggests that he probably did. And he writes it down for us so we can understand, don't make the same mistake of leaving God out of your life. Because he'll leave you empty. Now he calls himself, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. He calls himself the preacher. It's from the Hebrew word koheleth. It means an official speaker to an assembly. 
Uh, some have said maybe a better word here is instead of the preacher, the seeker, the searcher. Because he's searching for the meaning of life. And it means an official speaker to an assembly. Now this is, uh, the Greek word for this is, Greek word for assembly is ekklesia, which is where we get our English word ecclesiastes. That's the name of this book, assembly. It's also, ekklesia is where we get our English word uh, for church. Church means assembly. And so he's speaking to an assembly of people. He's trying to teach them, don't make the same mistakes that I've made. Now Solomon though did more than just call an assembly. This word also carries with it the meaning or the idea of debating. And he's not debating with his audience as much as you will see as we read through this book. He's debating with himself. And he's debating with life. And he's trying to understand is there any meaning. And he's going through question after question. And so as we study this book what we'll see is Solomon will ask a question. He'll debate the question and try to figure it out. And he'll come to a practical conclusion. And it'll be very practical for all of us. So Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's talk a minute about the aim. What is the aim? What is the purpose of this book? What is he trying to teach us? Well, Solomon puts the keys to this book, if you will, at the front door. Right at the front door. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I mean, he's going to say that over and over again. That's the key to this book. We'll explain that in just a moment, what vanity means. But he's saying, apart from God, everything is vain. It's vanity. It's empty. He not only put the key and the theme at the front door, he also put the key at the back door so we wouldn't miss it. Go to the very end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. And just so we don't miss it, he puts the key again. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. How much is vanity? All is vanity. That was his description of life. He came to the conclusion. His theme is this. Get it in your notes this way. I think I put it in your notes. The theme is this of this book. Without God, life will leave you empty, unfulfilled, and unsatisfied. Without God, life will leave you empty, unfulfilled, and unsatisfied. Now there's several key words and phrases that keep coming up in this book that you need to get a handle on. We need to get acquainted with these so as we read through and study this book you'll understand them. And the first one is the key. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well what does that mean? You're going to find the word vanity 38 times in this book. And it's from the Hebrew word hevel. It means this. Emptiness. Futility. Vapor. That's what it means. In other words, whatever disappears quickly leaves nothing behind and does not satisfy is vanity. That's what he's going to tell us over and over and over again. And Solomon sought in his life without God for some meaning. And he sought through wealth and wisdom and works and the world. And he kept coming up with the same conclusion. It's all vanity. It's all empty. It's like a vapor. It's here and then it disappears. It looks something kind of like this. And I about burned my hand that time. <laughs> It just goes away. It's like a flash in a pan. He said, no matter how long you live, whether it's 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, in light of eternity, it's here and it's gone. You know that. It's vanity. It's emptiness. Now remember, this is not, we're going to see, this is not Solomon's final conclusion, as we're going to discover later, but it's his conclusion when you take God out of your life and out of the equation. You're going to see another phrase in here. We see it real quickly. We're going to see it next week. And it's the phrase, under the sun. He talks about life under the sun. I look for this under the sun. I look for that under the sun. Under the sun, you're going to see 29 times. It simply means this, apart from God. That's what it means. 
trying to do anything life and search for meaning of life apart from God. Anything under the sun. This phrase defines the outlook of Solomon as he looks at life from a purely human perspective and not from heaven's point of view. He's trying to make sense out of life on his own. Have you ever tried that? You ever tried to make sense out of your life on your own? You ever tried to do life on your own? You try to work your marriage out on your own, your family on your own? Well, as Dr. Phil likes to ask the question, how's that working for you? Doesn't work very well, does it? And that was the same conclusion of Solomon. Solomon, now Solomon wrote this book under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And God told him and allowed what to put down. I want you to remind you of that again. Because look at chapter 12. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 10. You see this would refute those that try to say that um, this book isn't inspired by God. Because so many of the things are contradictory to what God says in other places. But remember Solomon's doing the talking. Being allowed under the inspiration of God. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 10. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. He said I tried to come up with my own words and I couldn't. And what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. You see that? Capital S. Who do you think that one shepherd is that is allowing Solomon to write these words down? It's God. He's the one shepherd guiding. So Solomon wrote what God allowed him to write but he wrote it, don't miss this, from Solomon's human viewpoint. And that's why it's so messed up. And he examined life under the sun, apart from God. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan wrote a book called The Unfolding Message of the Bible. And he said it this way about the book of Ecclesiastes. Because this book trips up a lot of people. He said this man had been living through all these experiences under the sun. Concerned with nothing above the sun. Until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of life. He had seen the whole of life. And there was something over the sun. He said, it is only as a man takes account of that which is over the sun as well as that which is under the sun that things under the sun are seen in their true light. See, so many of the things as he looked for his quest for meaning of life, he only looked under the sun. He only looked at what he could see, God not being a part of the equation, and it really messed him up. And it will mess us up as well. Ray Steadman, another Bible scholar, said this. Ecclesiastes is a collection of what man is able to discern under the sun. In other words, only in the visible world. Only what we can see. How many of you all agree and understand there is more than just a visible world. There is an invisible world. There is a spiritual world beyond just the visible. Say yes. He said, but Ecclesiastes, he's just looking at the visible world. The, the book does not take into consideration revelation that comes from beyond man's powers of observation and reason. It is an inspired and accurate book. It guarantees that what it reports is what people actually believe. It's what Solomon believed, but it is an examination of those beliefs. And their beliefs that are in error, as Solomon himself is going to tell us toward the, in the end of the book. But we need to keep that in context as we go through this. The errors and the thinking of his ways, when we only look at life under the sun, and not above the sun, and more importantly, to the sun. Let me give you another key word as we study this. It's, called, it's the word prophet. P-R-O-F-I-T. The word prophet. You find it ten times in this, in this book. Um, it comes from the Hebrew word yitron. It's the only place in the Old Testament you find this word. It means that which is left over. Surplus or gain. 
Now this word is important because the word prophet is the opposite of the word vanity. And he's going to say so many of the things I find are vanity. They're empty and there's no profit. There's no surplus. There's no gain. You see Solomon struggles to find any advantage to life or gain apart from God. He says there's, there really isn't any gain. There isn't any profit. There's not any point. Another key word is labor or work. You know we spend most of our life working. That's kind of depressing but it's true. And 23 times you find the word labor. Um, the Hebrew word amal. It means to work to the point of exhaustion with little or no fulfillment. I've probably just described half of you and your view toward your job. Working to the point of exhaustion with little or no fulfillment. Because if you take God out of the picture and out of your life, it's like, what is the point? Why do I get up every day to go earn a paycheck, to take the paycheck, to pay the bills, to get in my car that I paid for, to go to work and just do it? Oh, it's like this vicious cycle. It's like, what is the point? I mean, you probably felt this way. Felt like, I work, I work, I work. It's never enough. I'm never fulfilled. That promotion I keep trying to get, I get that and I want another one and they keep raising the bar. And that's exactly how Solomon felt. And his result of this kind of labor without God being a part of your life, he says it will lead to grief, it will lead to misery, frustration, weariness, and asking what is the point to all this? You see, looking at life only under the sun can make work seem very futile and very burdensome. But here's the good news. When God is a part of our life and when we get up every day and we go to work to provide for our family because God tells us to do that and we go to work realizing that that job is a gift from God. If you've got a job today, you should praise God. There's a lot of people that don't and wish they did have. That paycheck is a gift from God. Uh, that house is a gift from God. Your vehicles are a gift from God. Your family is a gift from God. That you get up and you go to your, your job, your place of work every day, and you don't just go to collect a paycheck, but you get up every day and you realize you're going to your mission field. You're going to your sphere of influence where God has allowed you to talk to people about Christ. And your whole outlook is different because you're not just going to get a paycheck. It's something God has allowed in your life. It changes everything, doesn't it? Changes your outlook and perspective of life. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He said this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, believers, Christians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, when we do everything in the Lord and with the Lord's perspective, it changes the way we view life. It changes everything. Now here at our church, we ultimately know that the work of the Lord is the work the Lord did when he was here working for three and a half years. And that was making disciples. When you bring people to Christ and you disciple them to spiritual maturity. And everywhere you go in your life, you're looking for opportunities to do that. That's not in vain. That's something, y'all, that lasts forever. Forever. Let me give you another key word we need to pay attention to. It's the word evil. Solomon uses this 31 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the opposite of good. It leads to pain, sorrow, hardship, hard circumstances, distress. This is one of Solomon's favorite words to describe life as he saw it under the sun apart from God. He said, if you take God out of your life, life is very evil. But he does use an interesting word that might surprise you in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the word joy. He uses the word joy. He uses it 17 times. You see, Solomon said in spite of all the painful encounters with the world, he said he doesn't recommend pessimism or having a cynical view of life. But rather Solomon will tell us to be realistic about life, accept God's gifts that he's given to us and the gift of life and enjoy them. 
You know, enjoy what you do have and see it as a gift from God, not something you've done for yourself. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 verse 17. He said this, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or prideful about their riches, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You know, we shouldn't feel bad if God has blessed us with a nice house or some nice cars or nice things. And, 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 but remember where they came from. They came from God and he's given them to us to enjoy. Now I know I read that verse and some of y'all tuned me out as soon as I started reading it because it says command those who are rich in this present age. And you said, oh well he's not talking to me. I'm not rich, that's not me. Yes you are. I dare say just about everybody if not everybody in this room if you take it in the context of our entire world that God is writing to and talking to, you are very rich. Did you know that over 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day? Lives on less than $2 a day. If you live in the United States of America and you have a roof over your head and a vehicle to drive, according to most of the world's standards, you are very wealthy and very rich. Most of the world would love to have the recession we have. We are rich, but we need to understand where those riches have come from. They've come from God and God's blessings. And thank God for them. And praise God we live in a country where we have been blessed. But we've got to have God's view and perspective in mind. You know, Solomon's going to tell us to trust God rather than complaining about what we don't have. Enjoy what God has blessed us with and understand how rich we really are. You know, I heard one person say it this way one time. They said, life is too short not to enjoy it. And life is too long not to enjoy it. So Solomon is not going to tell us not to enjoy life. He's going to say enjoy it, but enjoy it from God's perspective and that God has blessed us. And be content. And then the final word he, we're going to see a lot in this book is the word wisdom. The word wisdom. You're going to see it 54 times. Of course we're going to see the word wisdom because we're, we're reading a book that was written by one of the wisest men to ever live on this face of this earth. Other than Jesus, he was probably the wisest man to walk the face of the earth. And so he's going to talk about his wisdom. Now the opposite of wisdom is foolishness and folly. And you're going to see those 32 times. And he's going to contrast wisdom and foolishness in this book. And Solomon used all of his wisdom that God had given him to try to understand the purpose and meaning of life under the sun, apart from God. And like all, he really be, what we're going to read is, is a book written by Solomon like we're reading a philosopher, trying to figure out the meaning of life. That's what ph philosophy does, tries to figure out the purpose and meaning of life. And Solomon comes to the same conclusion that all philosophers come to. You take God out of the equation, it, it doesn't make sense. There's no point. Um, let, me, let me quote for you some famous French philosophers and what their answers were to try to come up with the meaning of life. Same conclusions as Solomon. French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said this, Life is inherently absurd. And this is a guy that was a professional at trying to figure out the meaning of life, but he left God. He was an atheist and God was not part of his life and he said life is inherently absurd. That's the conclusion you'll always come to if you cut God out of your life. Simon Blackburn, another philosopher, said this, When we ask if life has meaning, the first question has to be to whom? To whom does it have meaning? To a witness with the whole of space and time in its view, nothing on a human scale will have meaning. Nothing under the sun on a human scale apart from God. That's what he said. Solomon, like all philosophers, came to this same conclusion. Without God, life doesn't make sense. Here was Solomon's conclusion. I'm going to give you kind of the 
the end of the book, the end of the story. If you like, you know, like skipping the end of the movie, I'm going to give it to you right now. Basically, this is what Solomon said at the end. When he tried to figure out the meaning of life on his own and he couldn't, he said this. Here's the bottom line. Fear God and keep his word. That'll keep life real simple. Respect God, fear God, and keep his word. That'll keep you on the right track. Those are wise words from Solomon we all need to live by. We've seen the author, we've seen the aim. Now let's talk about the, the application as we bring this to a close this morning. What's the applications? I mean, are there any practical applications to this book for us? I mean, after all, you might think, come on, Pastor Doug, this is a book that is 3,000 years old. I mean, Solomon wrote this like some 3,000 years ago. I mean, could it possibly have any practical meaning and application uh, to us today? Well, Solomon says right here in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Have you guys ever heard that statement? That was Solomon's. He looked at everything and said, there's nothing new under the sun. Really, things haven't changed that much. And certainly when it comes to mankind, in 3,000 years, since Solomon wrote this, really nothing has changed. People are still looking for the meaning of life. They're looking for purpose. They're looking to be satisfied. They're looking to be fulfilled. They're looking to be happy. If you're looking to be happy, fulfilled, and satisfied, would you say yes? If not, then you probably need some counseling. We're looking for that. We want to be happy. We want to enjoy life. We want to be satisfied. We want to be fulfilled. And God wants those things for us too. We just got to look in the right place. But see, we live in the same kind of society that Solomon did. Solomon was a king and he lived in a very materialistic society. And everybody was looking for something to fill their life in some material possession or some person or some position. And they were not being satisfied. Man, I'll tell you, it's tough today to try to be satisfied with anything and be fulfilled. I'll put some pictures up here on the screen of some gadgets. Y'all like gadgets? You know, stuff that keeps coming out, man. It's like we can never keep up. I mean, I remember, you know, it wasn't good enough just to have the, you know, the old regular 32-inch, you know, tube TV. You know, they came out with the rear projection, you know. And then it was, remember when the HD TV came out? 720p, man. I mean, if you wanted to be cool and you really wanted to watch TV the way it was meant to be, you had to go get you some 720p. And as soon as we all went out and bought into that and we got that, they came out with... 1080i, you know? And then we all went out, we bought that, and then it was 1080p. It's like we can, it's never enough. We can never seem to be satisfied. We can never be, I mean, it's, I mean, TVs now are so thin, they're like a little piece of paper. I'm afraid they're going to blow off the wall. I mean, what's next? I saw this just the other day, commercials. Did you guys see it? They're, they're coming out, I think it's LG or somebody. Now is the first 3D TV. 3D TV. And now all the movies come, coming out in 3D. That just makes me sick. I don't even like that. There's glasses and stuff. I mean, what's next? The, I mean, the actor's just going to jump right out into our living room and we're going to like interact with them. But, but yet we keep buying into this stuff. It seems like it's, it's, never, it's never enough. You know, I mean, you got, you got the iPod and you know, and then you got the next iPod and 8 gigs not enough. You got to have 16 and then you got to have 32. And now, if you're really cool, you got the iPad. Anybody got that yet? You got the iPad, you know, and then we'll all go get that, and then there'll be the iPad too, and it'll be better than the iPad, and we'll all be bummed that we didn't get that. You know, I, I'm getting tired of going out and buying cell phones. Anybody tired of that? I mean, we should just go back to the old bag phone. Do you all remember the bag phone? I'm old enough to remember the bag phone. Man, I, I tell you, I go out, I get a cell phone, I get all excited about all the wonderful things that it does, and it never fails. God, God's trying to teach me something. I get a cell phone, and it never fails. I think I'm getting the latest, greatest, top of the line, and the next month, if they don't come out with the better model that's got more gadgets than mine had. Anybody that happened to you? Doesn't that make you mad? I just like, where, where does it stop? 
You know, you get a, a brand new vehicle, you get this year's model, and then the next year, they got to come out with a new model. And they got to come out with a new gadget, you know, and, and new people to talk to you on it, and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's like it's never enough, and we think these things are going to satisfy. And Solomon reminds us that trying to find fulfillment in the things of the world, he describes it this way in chapter 1, verse 17. We'll look at it next week. He says, it's like chasing the wind. You ever tried to chase the wind? Oh, you can chase it, but you can't catch it. And isn't life like that so many times? We're always chasing after bigger, better, the next thing, the next position, the next person. And we think, this will make me happy. This will make me fulfilled. This will make me satisfied. And if God is not a part of it, it never will. It leaves you the same way it left Solomon, empty. Listen to some modern day people that chased the wind and didn't catch it. People that had a whole lot more than probably any of us will ever dream of having. Remember a guy named J.D. Rockefeller? You ever heard of him? J.D. Rockefeller, one of the richest Americans ever lived, said this, I have made me many millions of dollars, but they have brought me no happiness. I mean, if there was ever a guy that was going to be happy with all the things and the money he had, it would have been J.D. Rockefeller, and he said they brought me no happiness. Let me tell you about an athlete, Deion Sanders. Prime time. He said this, I had everything that power, money, and sex could give me, but it was not enough. It didn't satisfy. It left me desperately empty inside. And yet some of us are trying to chase those very same things and thinking, oh, if I just had what they had, I'd be happy. I'd be satisfied. No, you wouldn't. Solomon experimented with, with all that life had to offer. And he came to the same conclusion. That there is no lasting satisfaction in possessions, in pleasures, in power, in prestige, or prosperity. They leave you empty. They leave you empty. We don't need to repeat these experiments that Solomon did. We can avoid the heartache. We can avoid the pain by learning from his example as we study this book. As he's telling us, stay away. It's not going to bring you happiness. The message that he has for us is this. It's very simply this in this book. This, the message is very simple. It's just really hard to remember and apply. Life without God is pointless and empty. It's pointless and empty. I love this verse. Listen to this verse that God said in Psalm 81.10. I love this. He said, I am the Lord your God. Open your mouth wide or your life and I will fill it. That is good. God says, listen, you want to find satisfaction, you want to find happiness, you want to find peace, you want to find fulfillment, open your life to me. I will fill it. Anything else will leave you the same way that it left Solomon and a lot of other people. Very empty. Jesus said this. Even if you did gain everything. Even if you had it all. Everything you have ever hoped and dreamed for. If you did have it. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26. For what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but yet loses his soul? Because all that stuff's going to burn up someday. Just like that piece of paper that I had up here. That's why I want to say this to you with all my heart this morning. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you've never invited God to personally be a part of your life, you're going to be empty until you do. Some of you, maybe this could be the most freeing day of your life today because you realize all the stuff and all the things and all the people that you've looked for fulfillment in have left you empty and today could be the day you get filled. Filled with Jesus Christ. Filled with God. Because it's the only thing can bring, that can bring fulfillment. Listen, I said this in the first service. I'll say it again in this service. For some of you, 
Your marriages aren't going well. They're falling apart. And let me tell you one reason why. It's not what you think. A lot of marriages are falling apart because two people get married because they want that other person to fulfill them and satisfy them. And let me tell you this morning, another person will never fully satisfy and fulfill your life. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And a lot of marriages struggle because they're looking at each other. As one of my spiritual mentors used to say, people go into marriage as two ticks and no dog. And they suck the life out of each other. You see, your life could change and your marriage could change if you quit looking to that other person to satisfy and fulfill you and you look to God. Because listen, I love my family. My family loves me. I wouldn't trade them for anything. But they make lousy gods. They cannot fill the, they cannot fill the position of God in my life. Because there's times they let me down and there's certainly times that I let them down. But there's one person that has never let me down and that's Jesus Christ. He has never left me. He's never forsaken me. He has never let me down. He's never left me unsatisfied. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision, you need to make that today. Make the decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and find out what satisfaction and fulfillment is really all about. And I know a lot of you here today, you're believers, you've accepted Christ into your life. But maybe you're like Solomon. There was a time in your life that you were serving God, you were faithful to God, He was satisfying, fulfilling your life, you were in God's Word, but you've moved away from that, like Solomon did. And you've went after the ways and the things of the world, and you wonder now why you're discouraged, and why you're defeated, and why you're miserable, and why you're cynical and pessimistic. I meet a lot of Christians like this, and it's because somebody moved in the relationship. And let me just tell you guys, it wasn't God. God doesn't move, we move. Amen? And maybe like Solomon, you need to go back to that faithful relationship to God where he was fulfilling and satisfying your life and stop chasing the things that are going to leave you, even as a believer, empty. You know, it's kind of like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. You guys know I like Wizard of Oz. And there's all kinds of spiritual truths in the Wizard of Oz if you know what to look for. And Dorothy, man, goes that whole movie. She's not going to be satisfied and fulfilled and happy until she gets back to Kansas. I mean, that's like her life dream. I've got to get back to Kansas. Why anybody want to go back to Kansas? I don't know. But, that's another story. But she's got to get back to Kansas. And you find out at the end of the movie, she had what she needed all along. The ruby red slippers. She had them all along. No place like home. You know, you know the deal. But we, as Christians, forget that when we've accepted Christ into our life, we have what we need all along. We don't need to leave it. We don't need to forget it. We just got done studying the book of Colossians. And remember what we learned in that book. It says this, For in Him, in God, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness. And you are, say it church, complete in Him. You're complete in Him. And even believers sometimes, like Solomon, can be deterred and distracted by the things of the world. Instead of our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we start living for the world, instead of the will of God in our life, we are looking at life from the wrong perspective. We're looking at it the same way that Solomon did, under the sun and not above the sun and to the sun. Popular American novelist Peter DeVries said this, Life is a crowded superhighway with bewildering, clo bewildering cloverleaf exits on which a man is liable to find himself speeding back in the direction he came. Maybe you've found yourself there. Speeding back in the direction you came. Well, that doesn't have to happen to you. 
King Solomon has already explored the road exhaustively and given us a dependable map to follow. So we don't take the wrong turn. We don't take the wrong off-ramp. And if we follow God's word as he's laid it out, we can and will be satisfied. And we'll realize that life is worth living when God is a part of it and Jesus Christ is in your life. I hope you're ready for this journey through Ecclesiastes in the next couple of months. It's going to be exciting. And I want to ask you this. What will your life be? Will it be vanity or will it be victory? It can be victory with Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me?